Hello, and welcome to On The Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Emma Bridgewater. Emma founded Emma Bridgewater, the modern pottery brand in 1985. Her hugely popular pottery is all handmade in Stoke-on-Trent using traditional techniques. This year, she designed a special edition Marie Curie Daffodil Polka Dot Mug, where five pounds from the sale of each mug sold goes to Marie Curie. Emma was awarded a CBE for services to industry in 2013. She has four children and currently lives in Norfolk. I'll be talking to Emma today via video call. Emma Bridgewater, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Can I begin today by asking if you can tell us about a significant death you've experienced in your life? There have been quite a few. We have had, as a family, we've we've had some, some sort of rather turbulent times. Um, but I, I think I'd like to focus on the death of my aunt, my mother's younger sister, which happened three years ago. She was tremendously important to me. I, I feel I've explored my mother's death very extensively in that she was, she was extremely ill for 22 years before she died. And somehow I sort of processed that a lot. Whereas her, her younger sister, who mattered tremendously to me, I felt it might be interesting to, to tell you a little bit about her. Was your aunt ill for a long time? Or? No, the, the thing is, my, whereas my mum had an accident when she was younger than I am now, in, him, in her early 50s, and then was ill for 22 years, as, I mean, very damaged by that accident. Her sister was killed in an accident, aged 70, and we had all had every reason to believe that she'd still be with us for decades at that point. We're quite a long-lived family, rather frighteningly long-lived. Um, one of my great-aunts made 103, nearly 104, and um, you know my granny was 90. I mean, you know, so we, there was a terrible feeling, terrible, terrible teaser that, that having lost mum, she would go on forever. I was really banking on on her. I mean, I did have banked on her all my life. She's been a huge support. And um, the shock of that was a very, very, very different experience. Mm. Hard, much harder to grieve, much, much harder than um, an anticipated death, someone who goes through a, and whether it's a long illness or in my mother's case, a sort of long deterioration. What happened to your aunt? Um, there was an accident uh, out of doors on a on a moor in Scotland, and the vehicle that she was in um, overturned. Uh, you know, you hear about those accidents, and you pray it doesn't happen to anyone you know. And and suddenly, it's her, and it's the worst nightmare. How did you first hear about the accident? Um, my brother rang me, and. 
he's a very gentle, sweet person, and he was tremendously cut up, but he was very, very kind of sweet and gentle. And then there was a sort of welter of calls. Um, my aunt has two sons, I spoke to them. And um, as a family, we, we, we sort of, we cleave together very strongly and, and kind of support each other. And um, my sisters and I, spoke about it a great deal so we kind of do verbalize it grief we, we we go to each other with our grief very readily i was just thinking about that you know whether whether we have any sort of advance warning about someone's death or not and um a lot of the work we do is to try and support people to plan for the end um you know so whether that's practical things like you know um having a will in place or talking to people about their funeral wishes um whether they want to be buried or cremated or and i think when it's a sudden death it makes potential for you know the, the sort of aftermath to be potentially more complicated than it might be if somebody's had time to plan or a family have had time to plan and indeed in this case there had been no i mean no there have been no plans whatsoever of course but the thing that intrigues me thinking about her is that hers was a life lived in a very contained i mean she was the most generous outgoing person but it was really exemplary. It's really interesting how clean and simple it was, how few complications she'd left. And it made it, it's had a big effect on me and that knowledge that you've got to tidy your affairs up, whether it's the practical things like a will. Now her husband is a solicitor and there was no question of her not having a will. And all that kind of thing was you know, the sort of practicalities in her case were always very straightforward. Um, so really what we had to do was to deal with our grief and our feelings about her. And we did that sort of very much together, um, you know, an awful lot of physical contact. I, when I think about having to deal with death during the pandemic, that you might not be able to be with your family, the people you love, it, I find that very, very difficult. It really breaks my heart to think of people dealing with death alone, because I know that we got through this tremendous shock with no plans in place, simply by being together and talking it through. And whilst we'd never talked about her death, she was, just as mum had sort of demystified childbirth, because she was keen on quite sort of fast and furious riding, she had a lot of horses, um, we, we'd all talked both humorously and seriously about the dangers and um, and how it could happen. And so those, though hers wasn't horse related, somehow it was in character. There, there, was, there was preparation in the way she'd lived her life and the way she'd talked about her life. And we, her, fam her immediate family, her husband and um, her widower and her sons knew exactly what to do there was a small church service for immediate family and then an enormous outdoor event it was in october and it was a miraculous golden afternoon after the church service and we built a huge bonfire and hundreds of people arrived and people on ponies and horses and lots of all-terrain vehicles it was it was an incredible coming together of just a small fraction of the people who'd adored her 
uh, and it somehow had um it just her character led us towards it so I, it, as i say it's made me feel really on my mettle i think you have to we should all prepare for it we should all talk about what we feel about death and how we would like to be remembered and although she hadn't explicitly done any of that with a view to her imminent death somehow she'd laid a lot of clues and left things in a very orderly way practically and emotionally and an enormous number of of loving uh, family and friends who sort of instinctively knew what to do in her case so she was preparing even though you might not have necessarily been directly discussing it and talking about it it feels to me like she lived a really good life she lived her life well her emotional affairs were in very good order she was never scrapping with anybody and if she you know i, I can't really think of her i think of her laughing I mean, you know, absolutely marvelous laugh and other people laughing with her it just her her life and death exemplify for me the need for an ever-growing awareness of how you are in the world and somehow she she passed through all of our lives like this terrific comet you know she was energy and fun and drama and whilst you know the her exit was dramatic and her the, you know the get together with this huge bonfire and the gorgeous autumn afternoon was was beautiful and dramatic her exit was as clean as could be you know there was very little ragged left over there's tremendous sadness but not the trouble that comes in after some deaths can i ask emma was death and dying something that was openly spoke about when you were younger you know in your in your family and as a family was it something that you talked about or was it something that wasn't discussed it definitely wasn't um sort of a forbidden subject whether it was you know um burying various pets you know from small sort of mice and guinea pigs to the, to the sort of bigger tragedies of a, of a dog much loved or a pony having to be um dispatched the cliche about sort of exploring that subject first through household pets is a good strong one because I know that as a child that was where a lot of those conversations started but if I tell you that my mum's and Teresa the aunt I, I was speaking of their father was a clergyman and I, he didn't die I mean I was in my I was 18 or 19 when he died so I remember him well and, and he was an extremely serious and learned man but there just wasn't any embarrassment about death I guess you know it was quite work a day for him um you know there's, there's something about an accustomedness which is this is a, sounds like an odd thing I'm about to say. There's something to me quite enviable about somebody who gets to kind of live with these big issues. I think they grow and they're, they're sort of, I think, tackling the huge business of death blind, as it were, with no practice, no, not having talked about it. It's unthinkable to me. And you need the help and guidance of, um, well, because of my grandfather, I, I would turn instinctively to the clergy. I know several priests who I'm, you know, I, I don't, you know, I would often ask for life advice, but knowing that they're um, in matters of, of bereavement, they're the ones with the expertise, you know, people such as yourself. And I think, I think one of the things I've learned in my business life is, for heaven's sake, stop and ask the way, as it were, ask for advice. Don't just drive around in circles, getting lost and feeling you know, sadder and more confused. I always liken 
the business of asking for advice is driving when you're lost. My husband and I always, and ex-husband, we also watched about it, he would hate to stop and ask, whereas I would immediately stop and ask as soon as I saw someone who looked as if they might know the way. And I, in driving, in marital driving rows, as in the rest of life, I think ask for help. Find somebody, you know, for me, the instinct is to, is to seek someone out who can help you. And I, I really, I think the fact that people are now really able to reach out for grief counselling, um, you know, for professional help is tremendous. But that's such a, such a civilised development. You touched on earlier, Emma, about how there was a difference in your experience of grief after your aunt's death because of obviously the traumatic sudden nature of it. Are you able to talk a bit about what some of those differences were? Between my aunt's death and your mum's? Yes, mum had a dramatic accident on a horse. So we all knew that she'd been doing something she loved and it was, and the accident came on her very suddenly and she then had this extraordinary, I mean, she very, she, they, they expected her to die and she didn't. So there were terrific traumas and she was, she was in intensive care for a month and then she was in a coma for another two months. Towards the end of that, she regained consciousness and the extent of the damage was very complex because she was physically much less damaged than they assumed while she was in a coma. They'd sort of thought she would probably be more impaired in most terms, but she was absolutely fit as a fiddle and climbing through windows and starting cars and letting the sheep out and try, sort of trying to live her old life. So she was discharged and very quickly sent home. My little sisters were the only people who were there all the time. Um, you know, while we sorted help out, they had the alarming job of looking after her and we put support in around her, but it was the beginning of 22, as I say, 22 years of tremendously testing and sad, times in which I know that I grieved her very fully and friends said oh no you won't have done when she dies it'll release a whole lot more sadness but actually in those 22 years I worked through my feelings about her and for better or for worse my my life sort of geographically has meant that I've spent a lot of time in the car a lot of time in the car on my own uh, routinely driving about 60,000 miles a year and I used that time not just to shout at Radio 4 and um, learn a lot of country songs, but also I thought about my mum. I played songs that I knew she loved over and over. Sometimes I think I would do that to trigger thinking about her on purpose in order to, to remember what she'd been. One of the difficult things through that long, long period of, you know, she was speechless. She was utterly confused. She never spoke again. Um, so I felt a great need to hold her very carefully in, in my mind as well, who she'd been and what we'd lost, to respect what, you know, that it was ghastly for each of us, but I quite quickly came to see it was worse for her, that what she was going through was a terrible, terrible thing. And then I got to a place of understanding that it wasn't a life of no value. You know, I, I'd sort of felt just as she'd always said you wouldn't put a horse or a dog through pain i couldn't bear that we had to watch her in this very kind of incredibly reduced and sometimes very unhappy state um and then i came to see that she that she was often happy in 
rather different terms. If I snuck in to the last nursing home, if she didn't see me coming, I would sometimes find her in the middle of a sing-song. I mean, you know, she wasn't really, actually she could sing sometimes, but she'd look quite happy. And I, I learned to, to know that sometimes, perhaps particularly when her guilt-inducing family weren't around, I think she wasn't always unhappy. And I, somewhere along the way, I, I started to let her go, to let her leave. And when she died, I was just tremendously happy and relieved. I saw, I felt it absolutely clearly as, as a release for her. And there was no sorrow after. I mean, the sorrow had all been, I, in, I'd sort of quite consciously, and sometimes mostly unconsciously, but sometimes I'd consciously, as I say, triggered myself to kind of keep on that journey of really thinking about her. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it does. And I'm just really struck by you, you describing your time in the car and that was not out of choice as you say it was kind of part of your life and driving a lot of miles but what i heard there was taking the time to reflect on and think and almost be quite proactive about you know putting the song on to to get the memory to work through the process yes it, and it i always worry about the word work for this kind of psychological um, kind of exploration and development, but actually that's what it is. It is quite hard work. I mean, you know, it makes you sad. I mean, I wept buckets for her. There's so much grief, but I found it very, very, very helpful to be on my own in the car, not upsetting anyone. I didn't want the, I mean, I, I wanted my children to know how sad I was, but I didn't, they didn't need to see the extent of it. And I felt that much as I, presented the mileage and my, I mean, I, it really exhausted me. I did know it had been a very fortunate thing that, well, that I had been able to put it to very good use. And I would often drive in silence or seek out very different music to, to kind of, I mean, it, again, just triggering, pushing, pushing on, trying to, um, trying to make it progressive, my feelings about her. I mean, and about life, it, it, you know, in amongst that, obviously I was thinking about the rest of my family and my work and, my marriage and our friends you know it wasn't it was she was she'd been a great life enhancing figure and whether I was actually I don't know if it exactly relates to this but what I, I came to realize that she after mum died that she'd just become a part of me or I had become a part of her and there wasn't much difference really between me her her mother and one of my younger sisters died of cancer um, last Christmas and I sometimes feel quite confused about where the boundaries are between us all, because particularly uh, I live in North Norfolk in a place that was familiar to my mum in her childhood and her mum. And, you know, I remember Nell, playing, my, little, my younger sister, playing here, romping in the mud as a, as a child. So all the same places, all the same picnic ingredients, the, way, the things that Granny taught mum taught me, that I did with Nell, that I'm doing with my kids. It all becomes kind of this this very lovely kind of continuum. So place has really helped me, I think. If I'm doing the things that mum taught me, or, or you know, if I'm doing things that, that her sister, my aunt taught me, I'm they're so close to me. I find that very, very, very comforting. The coronavirus pandemic has triggered a wave of bereavement across the country and taken away our ability to be with loved ones and grieve in traditional ways. 
Marie Curie's new Memory Cloud is an online space to reflect on a loved one's life and share special memories with your friends and family. Visit memorycloud.org.uk. So moving on a bit, you um, have your children and your own family. Would you say that you talk to them about death and dying? Is, is again, is it something that's sort of open in your house? Um, I really want to say yes, but I really want to make sure that it's true. But for my children, I don't know whether we've been very unlucky, but between them, they've lost, I think, five close friends. I've got four children. And some of those were, were sort of friends of the family, friends of all of the children. So I think, I mean, I really hope we have talked properly and openly. And there have been some extraordinary commemorative events. And I think of some of the services for those kids and how much you can do in your sort of communal grieving, um, that the sharing is so important. But actually with one of my children recently, we were walking up the Thames, doing a bit of the upper Thames that I know very well. And she said, I'm really struggling with the death of one particular very close friend of hers, which was a long time ago now, it's come five and a half years ago, maybe six. And she said, it's still so raw and vivid to me. How do I, how do I move on with it? How do you deal? Where, you know, where, where is your mum? Where's Teaser? We're talking about other people who died because mum's two best closest friends died just after her. And we were walking towards Kelmscott, which is William Morris's house, a place that I was taught by mum to love very much. Not that I went there with her, but William Morris was one of the household gods. He was, his taste, his energy, his extraordinary sort of multi-talented life has always interested her. And so she passed that on. And I've since been there a lot and I really love it. And I said to Kit, as we walked along the path upstream towards it, you know, I have a strangely um, powerful uh, sort of image thing that I use, uh, the imaging that I learned actually when I was preparing for her birth, marvelous midwife taught me that very good trick of, of turn, turn the, the contraction into something extreme and positive. So I, I turned it into surfing. And I said, I have a sort of imaging thing that I do when I'm sad about mom, can't or tea or who, you know, the, the many people we've lost recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I develop a magical power and I can swim upstream like a very, very sort of powerful mermaid. And we all love swimming in the, in the Thames, particularly, but any, you can show us any lake or river or beach, we'll, we'll be charging down <laughs> towards it. Um, and that was mum and that was Teaser who kind of imbued all that. And I said, I swim to Kelmscott. And then I, obviously I, I've, I'm no longer a mermaid because I can walk around and it's dusk. It's quite difficult to and they're all inside there and they're having a really lovely time and I can hear them and I can smell what um, mum's cooking for supper and it's it's going to be great in there <laughs> and I kind of have a really balanced thing about whether I'm glad not to be in there or actually would quite like to be in there and that mirrors a thing that sometimes with mum when I was doing the horses on a winter evening, 
she loved and the yard was just a few it's like 30 yards or so from the house and she said i love the view of my house at night lit up and everyone in there so that image of a of a warm safe place you know, lit and glowing and candles and fires and that really helps me and uh, i do that often if i'm in trouble about it about grief well that sounds like an incredibly open conversation you had with your daughter on that walk so i think i think <laughs> and also the fact that she's she's able to talk with you and tell you that yeah even though it's five and a half years ago it's still raw and it's still painful and um you know what what can i do mum and you know yeah. you can talk about what helps you um you know in your grief or what helps you when you're struggling and i think that visualization mum sounds very beautiful but i know that can be incredibly helpful as well can't it it's sort of when you started to describe it i thought you were going to talk about taking yourself off somewhere else, but actually I was moved by the fact that they were all there at the end of it. Yeah, that's the, that's the good bit. Yeah, that's the good bit. <laughs> I, I am going to see them all again. Yeah, which is really lovely. Um, can I ask, Emma, do you, do you think about your own death? No, I don't. But as I said, I think... I think it was particularly my aunt's death that made me know you've got to start weaving in the loose ends now. Just, you know, don't leave a mess. Don't, don't be at odds. Don't, you've got to try and, I feel, I feel on my metal to, to make a good death, to prepare. Well, I'm not saying I'm preparing. I'm saying at the moment, it's, it's sort of the outside of that. It's trying to make sure that I'm, I'm not making a, a muddle. I'm not going to, as far as possible i'm trying to see my way to leaving things in a in an orderly state both the practical things and the emotional things does that mean that you've had conversations about your wishes with um your family about your end of life wishes or or wishes after you died um not really i mean we've had rather an appalling lot of practice and we've organized some extraordinary funerals and memorial services and parties and get-togethers as a as a clan and i i got to the place of thinking that belongs to who who's left behind um i can completely entrust myself to them if i've got it right in life um because after all i won't be there i'll i'll be whooping it up in <laughs> in Kelmscott with the, with the others is sort of what I feel that I will be my feelings about it are by then irrelevant I hope they'll feel empowered by me to make their own decisions about what they need and sometimes a very very big thing is called for my sister Nell's death was was a huge 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 event even while she was in hospital many 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 people came through that ward to say goodbye to her while she was dying and that went on for a whole week over a whole weekend and her funeral was you know i don't know how many people were there 1500 or something like that I mean, it was huge it was a cathedral mm. that was necessary for her whereas sometimes something much simpler um you know my my grandmother's funeral in a church that i can see from the window here was just very 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 simple and and a, 
a huge skein of geese flew over as we were standing around the grave and it just felt like it was done it was just it was all finished very well so sometimes it just like i think weddings got a bit out of hand i think funerals could get out of hand we don't all need a great big send off but neither do we need to say i won't have a big send oh do you know what? i think it's up to my kids at the t and whoever you know whoever the key people are in my life at the time that i die i think it's up to them and i entirely I, I feel that part of that preparation is is knowing that that i'm absolutely that i absolutely trust them and that it's it's what they need to know they they've already found out does that yeah does that make yeah. sense yeah it does i think um you know as, as i said earlier part of the premise of the podcast is to encourage people to have conversations about death and dying um and and in those conversations, uh, people are going to have them, you know, we'd encourage people to have them with their own family. And oh, definitely, friends. definitely. Um, and I think some of the practical things like we touched on earlier, like, you know, writing a will um, or um, funeral wishes are, are, of course, important. And it's good to get them written down and, and have those things documented if that's important to you. But also what care people want as well when they're dying so where they might wish to die whether that yes. be in a hospice yes. or at home or yeah. um and for some people it's not important but for some people it is and i was struck by um you know your mum 22 years of her life and how she was um she, she'd ended up in a place in her life where she was less able or maybe even unable to express her wishes you know just on a daily basis and i was just thinking about people who might be listening who's caring for someone right now who might be living with a chronic long-term terminal illness um who's less able to express what they want and what's important to them and what matters to them and how do we have those conversations before we end up in that situation? You know, how do we plan for that? Well, if we just set COVID aside for a moment, what occurs to me as you as you paint that picture is that we could well do with any version that works of of the wake, of waking the person after their death, because it, it perhaps it's in the swapping stories. So it just say someone to, eventually dies after a long illness, very tired. And um, I mean, the, the care, the care has played out and not sort of perhaps lost track of, of what the person was before that terrible illness. There's a huge joy in being together, whether virtually or, I mean, I think it would be something to, to really struggle to achieve so that you can um, share stories about that person. And I think in those stories, you'll find clues to how to how to properly see them off if they haven't left you a, a you know a sort of an order of service and i have to say a, a close friend of mum's did plan her service and she was having a terrible time dying of cancer and with a lovely priest who is exactly one of the people i was thinking about when i mentioned earlier how important the professionals can be with your great experience um and it was very necessary for her and um, her family said you know that it gave her great courage and comfort but actually there was some i mean her hand was so strong on the service 
and it, for various good reasons, it was several months after her death. I found it quite difficult, actually. It was almost too intense that possibly my instinct to, to sort of let the maybe give yourself over to to your family and friends i mean it was it was beautiful everything she i mean all, all her arrangements were wonderful but there was something quite spooky about it as well about her hand in every detail of the of the service that's really interesting um is legacy something that's important to you in legacy as in how you'd like to be remembered or how you will be remembered i don't think it's up to me i really don't and i'm i'm bothered by people curating their legacy uh, you know I, I think it leads to hs2 <laughs> <laughs> i think the idea that you should um i don't know try and control what you're remembered as and for is desperate really really desperate um and i also i feel sorry when people start a charity i can see how that work and memorializing can be really really good but for me it, i think you've got to be careful about the levels of distraction that you give yourself and i would definitely encourage people to donate perfectly speaking to marie curie so often your best help in those de desperate dog days you know so i think sometimes people cut themselves an enormous great um, task to distract from grief, whereas it might be better to sit with the grief and to encourage and to raise money for an existing charity. I'm not quite sure why I feel that, but I, I know I do. I, I suppose it's actually, it is slightly anti the legacy idea. I think sinking down into the turf is what you do then, I mean, whether you're buried or cremated or whatever. I don't think, I don't think you matter when you're gone. And I, I think, well, my grandmother had this thing that she didn't want a gravestone because she felt they were melancholy. And the churchyard here were very keen that people would know where her grave was. And so the compromise I came up with was a flat stone, sort of, you know, proud from the ground. And I thought for as long as perhaps, you know, my daughters and their children or whatever are visiting, they can sort of scrape, the, the grass will start to grow over it. They can scrape it back. And then when it's forgotten, when she hasn't got any visitors, it can quietly sink down. And that, I, I feel that straining for immortality means nothing to me. But then I'm the person who's put my name on a lot of cups. So which, some of which, as we know, you know pottery shards might last a long time. So perhaps I'm talking complete nonsense, but I, the idea of trying to guide what people think about me after I'm dead, I've, I really don't like. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that, how long pottery lasts, the little shards. <laughs> yeah, it's a thought, isn't it? So there you go, I'll, I'll be remembered as a fragment of spotty pottery. <laughs> um, just before we finish off, Emma, um, can I ask what, what it's meant for you to be able to share your story with Marie Curie today? Well, I was, it's a privilege to have been asked. And uh, exactly like you, I feel keen to encourage people to talk with their friends, with their family, about their feelings about death, whether it's the death of, of somebody precious who's just died or what might happen after one's own death. I think talk about it, folks. We should all be able to talk more readily about death, bereavement, terminal illness. Otherwise, suddenly in the great sort of sadness and trauma of someone's death, you've got to learn the vocabulary all in, all in a rush. And, if there is a barrier, if you do feel shy about it, 
work to break it down. Better to start processing, it's better to start thinking and let what can happen. You know, I think I think through talking about it, through processing grief, it's possible to find the well, if I think of kick my daughter and I walking along the Thames, she's still so sad about a, a, a death five years before. Whereas more recent, you know, my sister's more recent death, I felt I could feel myself processing because of having that imaging. So you want to get from the deep, deep, dark misery to some kind of joyful connection with what that person really was. So the loss starts to just meld into the joy of that life because it's so awful to live sad. And I think talking about grief can help convert that, that heart-rending trouble and sadness into a gentle kind of real real available joy about the person instead and achieving that for my aunt and my mom and I mean I'm still working on it with my sister it's very raw but it feels so worthwhile mm, I like that Emma Bridgewater thank you so much for joining me today on the Marie Curie couch and telling your stories and being so open and honest with us today Jason, thank you for asking me. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website, mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.